Hello, and welcome to Return to Regalia, an Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. And I'm Nate. And we are back for Gregor and the Curse of the Warmbloods. Oh yeah, Gregor 3, Gregor Harder. <laughs> <laughs> this one is a lot of people's favorite book in the series, I think. Oh dang. What do you remember from this book? Like, what, what are the standout moments for you? What do I remember? I mean, there's the scene of um, Luxa watching Gregor as he drowns in the quicksand, which is fun. Yeah, possibly my favorite scene mm-hmm. in the series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. I don't. I honestly, I don't know if I remember much else. I remember this is the scene where all the rats go in the walls to try to make him go down. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that I remember. Yeah, that part's yeah. scary. Yeah. Right. I'm just like I'll I'll things to say about that theme later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, I think those are the two main things I remember. Like, I mm-hmm. I don't remember a whole lot of this, actually. Yeah, yeah. I like this book a whole lot. It's probably, like, my second favorite after Marks of Secret. Nice. Just because of how many iconic scenes it has. We've got Gregor and Lapblood's relationship. Oh, yeah. And I forgot, Hamnet is introduced in yeah, this story. How could this I forget about Hamnet? Hamnet yeah. book, yeah. We get, like, Hamnet and Luke's a relationship, Gregor and Hamnet, like, yeah. the parallels. And also Hamnet's um, kid who's also half Overland, which I always, I'm always like, how did that happen? Yeah. Like, what was the, I need to know what the situation there was. Oh, yes. I need the Hazard backstory. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. His name is Hazard, which is also awesome. I thought that was so metal as a kid. <laughs> right? It is. Like, I want to know what. Like, why is he named that? Yeah. Is it like, did Hamnet name him that? Or did his mom name him that? I feel like his mom wouldn't have. Because, like, Hazard is not an Overland name at all. Yeah. Wait, how did he even, how did Hamnet even get custody of Hazard? Oh, because the mom died. Oh, okay. She did officially die. Yeah. Okay. R.I.P. Mrs. Mrs. Hamnet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unnamed Overlander woman. Mm -hmm. No, I'd love to. I'd love to know that story. Mm-hmm. There's probably fanfic about that. Ooh, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. That's that's the song Virgin Snakes prequel. It's just ha- it's like um, what's a romance movie that's that's bad? How to lose a guy in ten days? <laughs> 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 that's just a a u. But but that and Hamnet and Mrs. Hamnet mm-hmm. meeting and falling in love and having a child and then Mrs. Hamnet dies tragically I assume in the forest yes I imagine that there's probably some like Romeo and Juliet shit going on between them just because they come from different worlds yeah like it's so balcony scene core (laughs) she's literally above oh yeah yeah No, we'll get to Hamnet okay I have so many Hamnet thoughts oh boy okay one of the characters of all time yes but for now, we'll be covering the first three chapters of The Curse of the Warm Bloods, in which Gregor gets a message from Vicus, reads the prophecy, and takes a trip beneath Central Park. <laughs> so we start with part one, The Plague. The book opens with Gregor staring at his bathroom mirror, holding up the prophecy scroll that Nerissa gave him at the end of book two. He starts to read it, but gets interrupted by Lizzie and Boots needing to use the bathroom. It's been a few months since he got back from his last quest, but he hasn't told his family about the prophecy of blood yet. So they just think he's spending time in the bathroom because he's a teenage boy. Yes. Which really kills me that he just that he just took the L on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have so many thoughts. We'll get to that in a okay, second. Okay. Okay. Literally. <laughs> we'll get to it. 
So Gregor hides the scroll before he opens the door for his sisters, who are both wearing coats and hats because their apartment is freezing. Gregor's neighbors have apparently called the city multiple times about their building's weak boiler, but nothing has changed. And I was wondering, like, why would you call the city for that? Oh, yeah. Because that seems like something you'd call a landlord about. I assume that the landlord was already not fixing it. Oh. And they they were, like, reporting it to the city. That could be it. Or maybe it's, like, project housing, which I don't actually know how that works, but, like, the city's in charge of it. Yeah, I was wondering if... I, like, tried to Google, like, is there just, like, city-owned housing in New York? And I'm I'm sure there is some kind of it, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't figure it out exactly, and I didn't have enough time to (laughs) deep dive. Boots is learning how to use the toilet like a big girl, and Gregor helps her wash her hands after. He goes to get some lotion for her, and Lizzie warns him that he picked up shampoo by accident. (laughs) I was thinking this is a really good summary of just, like, Gregor and Lizzie's states of mind right now. Uh Like, Gregor is super distracted thinking about the Underland, and then Lizzie is worried and alarmed at everything. Yeah, because she, like, yells when he picks up the shampoo, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's like, that's shampoo! Like, that's, (laughs) yeah, she's, like, kind of freaked out about it. Yeah. I, was, I have been thinking, like, Lizzie, when, when Gregor and Boots went out to the underworld, Lizzie was the only person with his mother who was, like, completely pre- mentally present in the situation and just, like, yeah. was kind of, like, taking that mental burden with her. Yeah, like, can you imagine being a seven-year-old and both of your siblings go missing after your dad has already gone missing and you're just alone with your mom and your invalid grandma and that's it right and your mom is super worried that you might go missing yeah i assume no yeah the fact that lizzie has so much anxiety is she is so valid yeah she has a lot of things to be anxious about (laughs) along with using the toilet boots has also learned how to pronounce the r in gregor's name well just the first r (laughs) so now she says grego instead of gego the kids all go to the kitchen where their dad is baking biscuits Gregor notes that his dad's health has improved a bit in the last few months, and he attributes it to the medicine that the Underlanders sent him home with. You know, considering that the Underlanders went to the Underland, like, in the 1400s? I think it's like 1700s. Okay, 1700s. Okay, that was back when they were, like, using cocaine for medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they were just like, we're just gonna put all this stuff together in a jar and and a random- 1600s, actually. 1600s, okay. so But, But yes. Okay, but they still would have had, like- this is the random guy who goes town to town with his wagon and he sells a tonic that cures all ales and it's yeah. just like cocaine and piss. Like, is that what the underwear is? <laughs> That's what they're saying. I guess ours is also based on that and we don't do that anymore. But still, they, they haven't had all the all the like advancements that have happened in the overland. Like right. they don't have all the other feedback from the other people. Yeah, they have their own kind of medicine though, I imagine. Uh-huh. Like they have their own doctors doing research and stuff. That's true. So they, they have been advancing, just not in the same way way the overland has right and they their focus has been on different health issues probably that's true they probably have lots of different health issues in the underland yeah because like back in the day as a cough suppressant they would just give people heroin that's what it was i saw that wikipedia that the wikipedia have you seen this it's like a picture of somebody's like the comedic timing on this wikipedia article is incredible it says heroin stopped coughing at the source the brain (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have seen that Yeah, so maybe maybe Gregor's dad is just, like, high on heroin <laughs> this whole time. Head <laughs> <And> cannon. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> 
Gregor is hopeful that his dad will be well enough to teach high school science again in the fall. <laughs> That's going to be a hell of an employment gap to explain. Oh, oh, yeah. And then you have to go back to all these high school kids who, if they hear about this, are like, hey, back from wherever you were, Mr. Gregor's dad. Yeah. Gregor thinks about how his breakfast of two biscuits and a hard-boiled egg is pretty good for an end-of-the-month meal because his mom only gets paid at the start of the month, so they usually run out of money for groceries by the end. I was wondering at this scene why they don't like get food assistance or use a food pantry. Cause I, I am that maybe they do. Right, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like They don't say, but it's just like, even yeah. with that. Gregor also notes that Boots is drinking apple juice that they've watered down to try and make it last. I just think these details about Gregor's family's poverty are so illustrative. Yeah. Like, these are the little things that you don't think about. Right. This really puts into perspective what they're going through. Like, literally living from paycheck to paycheck. Like, you're out of money by the time you get the next paycheck. And they they still have the bills. They have probably Gregor's dad's healthcare bills. Yeah. Grandma's healthcare bills. Oh, right, right. And, like... Mom is the only one working. Right. For three kids. Yeah. 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 That's three, three kids and a grandma and a disabled husband. Right. Right. Yeah. That is a lot for one person. After breakfast, Gregor and Lizzie get ready for school and Lizzie makes a joke about Gregor hogging the bathroom all the time. And this is what I'm going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole. Oh, I'm intrigued. Because the narration describes this as being, like, a family joke. And I'm like, let the boy have his private time. (laughs) His bedroom doesn't have a door. I was trying to remember. I'm like, no, it doesn't. His bedroom does not have a door. We learned that last book. And the bathroom is literally the only place he's ever alone. Like, just in general. Like, he is not ever, ever alone. Because his apartment is packed. At school, he's not alone. Like, right, the bathroom is his only sanctuary. Right, like he, he, I'm, he's not allowed to go to the laundry room. Like, I'm sure his mom keeps tabs on wherever he's going. Like, yeah, uh, that is true. I, I, yeah, I, I did not even consider that. And I mean, I was thinking about this a lot actually. I was uh-huh. making some other connections, you know, some some text to text connections. All right, all right. Because this reminded me of it's kind of a funny story. Oh yeah, you said. Oh, I should have written down the Ned, author's name. Ned Vizzini. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so it's a novel about this this boy who's like super depressed and he talks about how he loves going to the bathroom because it's like the one place that no one expects anything of you and you're there for one job and you can't fuck it up. So it's like a comfort to him. <laughs> um, I actually, I like went and found the quote. He says, I have a system with bathrooms. I spend a lot of time in them. They are sanctuaries, public places of peace spaced throughout the world for people like me. It's my body doing something it has to do, like eating, although I'm not too good at that. You do it and it's done. It doesn't take any effort or any planning. And like, I can seriously relate Mm -hmm. as someone with hand washing OCD. Oh my God. Like sometimes the bathroom is just the perfect place to chill and get away from everyone. Same. I'm remembering now, like when I lived at home, like first of all, I I would also get jokes about being in the bathroom too long because I would be reading in there. Yeah. And my grandma would always be like, are you in the bathroom again? I'm like, stop it, grandma. Yeah. But I also remember just like sitting in the bathroom, like writing fan fiction, not just like leaning against the bathtub, just like, this is my only, this is my only sanctuary yeah and you shared a bedroom right yeah so with I w- your siblings yeah it was either the bathroom or the unfinished part of the basement is where i did all my psychosexual development <laughs> <laughs> you know 
you know, yeah. we've all been there. We've all been there. No, yeah, like, I would get this all the time from my friends when my OCD was really bad in high school. Like, mm-hmm. my friends would just be like, you're going to the bathroom again? And I'm like, yeah, I need a break. Like, I need to just hold my hands under this, like, cool water and chill the fuck out. <laughs> But then there's like this other side of the bathroom. Have you read that Tumblr post that is about how like the characters in Animorphs discover horrible things in bathrooms? No, I have not. Okay, lucky for you, <laughs> I have copy and pasted it. Oh, hell yes. I went into the Animorphs tag and found it. <laughs> this is from Tumblr user Exigence Lost. Somebody mentioned in a tag on one of my posts the scene where Marco Animorphs is showering after Aunt Mageddon. Wait, side note. Gregor yeah. also has Aunt Mageddon. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> There's also an Aunt Mageddon and Gregor. Gregor and the kids from Animorphs, not that I've read Animorphs, I feel like they would have such an understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that guy would just be like, yeah, I'm a hawk forever. And Gregor would be like, I know how you feel, man. <laughs> I also haven't read Animorphs. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, so, but I, I remember this post because it's, like, really good. Anyway, <laughs> Marco Animorphs is showering after Aunt Mageddon, and he finds an ant stuck to his hip by the pincers, where it presumably was trying to bite him in half when he was an ant, and then it died from him becoming very big very fast. And I feel like that scene, and the scene where Cassie finds a sliver of a sentient person's flesh between her teeth while flossing and then flosses until her gums bleed, really deserve recognition in the literary canon. I Okay, I do remember reading that post. I was like, wow, this is gross, but I also, under, I also like cool. Yeah, later it goes... Bathroom horror, your bedtime bathroom routine as an opportunity for personal confrontation with the violent detritus of the dead which lingers in and on your body even after you have ostensibly stripped yourself of weapons and healed over all your wounds. That's so true. Like, like, like even back to Macbeth, like out damn spot when yes. she's trying to wash off the blood. Every scene where a character looks in the the mirror like like medicine cabinet mirror and just like when i'm drunk at a party and i go into the bathroom i'm just like oh it's different in here this is a moment yeah yeah it's like very liminal space yeah the mirror alone is like this symbol of self-reflection right forced to confront yourself and oh yeah and then in the tags of this post they say Applegate said, what if you could transform your body entirely and literally rewrite your genetic code, but it was not enough to get away from the evidence of the terrible things you have asked your body to do? What then? Damn. Which is like poetry. But I also think this relates so much to Gregor because I don't know if it's in this book. I think it may be at the end of this book. He's like in the bathroom and he's like looking at all these scars that he's gotten. And he's just like, wow, I'm never going to be able to like wear short sleeves again. And I'm never going to be able to like swim at a pool with people. I do remember thinking about that. Yeah. It's rough. Like he's just indelibly scarred from all of these experiences in the underland and the bathroom is where he's forced to confront these truths yeah yeah and i think that that's very metaphorical as the bathroom is a place where teenagers confront truths about themselves you know (laughs) he walks out of the bathroom and his parents like you were in there for a while he's like i was confronting truths mom leave me alone (laughs) i was i was uh (laughs) I can't. <laughs> I was studying the prophecy. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, so like 
I had a lot of thoughts about bathrooms, Mm -hmm. basically, is Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. And just, like, the symbolic nature of them and what they mean specifically for, like, a kid his age and the concept of self-reflection, this concept of privacy, of which he has none. Right. Too much self-reflection, no privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's Gregor's problem. Yeah, that's true. Like, the only room where he can be alone also has a giant mirror. Yeah. Yeah. The only place... That he can be alone is also where he has to be alone with himself. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck, that's good. Damn. <sighs> Bathrooms, man. And actually, I was thinking about this, too, because, like, in the same scene, Boots, like, is using the bathroom. And a lot of, I feel like in most stories I read, like, nobody, you don't go into much detail. It's like, they went to the bathroom. They came back. Like, you don't go in the bathroom. You don't talk about pee or poop. And then this book, mm-hmm. like, I notice it in these books because my OCD is always like, I don't like that. Stop doing that. But it's it's really interesting. And I, like, I wonder why she does that. Because it makes it feel more real, but it also makes it feel like more, like, this is a little kid. Boots is a little kid who, like, talks about this stuff. Yeah, no, because Suzanne Collins really does go into the bathroom habits of these characters more than any other book I've read. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said about that uh, of like, it's this this biological thing that everyone does. And like, why would you not write about that? And it is very, like we've been talking about, like bathrooms and the way that you exist in a bathroom or interact with the bathroom is like very indicative of your character. Yeah. Like in Regalia, the bathrooms are like really fancy and like, really nice and they're all like stone and the water is like always running but then in gregor's house like the water is always cold because the pipes are bad right there's only one yeah and you have to run the water for a long time because there's lead in the pipes right so there's a lot there and i think that it goes hand in hand with the theme of food and eating that it's like these things that make us people humans animals that we all share yeah, there's something very like characterizing about how you go about interacting with those things. And also just like the implications that people don't think about, like of the larger world. Like I read, I can't credit this person because I don't remember their name, but I saw a Tumblr post about the anime and manga. The manga that's recently become an anime, Dungeon Meshi, which means delicious dungeon and probably isn't pronounced exactly like how I just pronounced it. Um, but somebody said a Dungeon Meshi is the only thing that understands that food is inherently violent and violence is inherently sexual, which I, we can, we don't have to talk about the second part, but the food is inherently violent. <laughs> no, I like it. I uh-huh, like it. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that's it. This is like, you know, we can, we can zoom in on all of these little aspects of life and really look at them and they can be so indicative of other parts of life. Um, Food is a big one in these books. Right. Um, Like scarcity of food. How, How much food do you have? What kind of food are you eating? And I think that in a similar way, the bathroom thing is, it can be like a theme, I feel like. Yeah. Like, I'd be interested in just like paying attention to bathroom, <laughs> bathroom analysis. going analysis. Yeah. I'm just going to drink. Yeah. Even on this podcast, we're constantly drinking water to lubricate our speaking parts. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just gets cut out. It's the part, it's the seamy underbelly of life that you don't see. Exactly. <laughs> it's the stuff that you need to cut out. But Suzanne Collins is not shy away yeah. from the truth. <laughs> of having a physical form yeah anyway <laughs> moving on from that <laughs> gregor's family thinks he's looking in the mirror to try to look good for a girl at school and he just like pretends that they're right the narration says 
The truth was, he was thinking about a girl, but she didn't go to his school, and he wasn't worried about what she thought of his hair. He was wondering if she was even alive. He's just like, yeah, I have a girlfriend, but she doesn't go to this school. <laughs> you don't know her. She's listening to the Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a queen. Yeah. You guys, yeah. trust me. <laughs> she's like really cool. She can do backflips. So yeah, we get a little description of Luxa and the backstory about her being missing, along with Aurora Temp and Twitch Tip. Gregor's worried because he hasn't gotten any updates from Regalia about them yet, and he has no idea what's going on down there. Because he's so preoccupied, he can't pay attention in class, he doesn't hear people when they speak, and he forgets things. For example, his dad has to remind him to take his backpack on the way out the door. Gregor walks Lizzie to elementary school and promises he'll be there to pick her up at the end of the day since he's already forgot twice this month. Which sucks so bad, like Lizzie's already so anxious and can you just imagine her like knowing that something is wrong with her brother and not knowing like how to help or... Yeah. It's it's just like adding to the instability of her life that he's forgetful enough to forget her at school. Yeah, and that also that she doesn't no every time he forgets is it like oh did he forget or did the rats kidnap him again like <laughs> yeah yeah did is he back in the underlay like yeah you're right it's it's just like her life is so unstable mm-hmm. it makes complete sense that she's just like anxious all the time as gregor walks the rest of the way to his school he thinks about how it's just a matter of time before he goes back down to the underland But he's also angry at the Underlanders for not keeping him in the loop about what's happened to Ares, who wasn't left in a good place at the end of book two. The narration says, Gregor had a bad feeling that wherever Ares was, he was suffering. Which is terrible, because Ares literally has the plague right now. I was gonna say, like, that's just how Ares is, man. But yeah. No, yeah. Whatever he's doing, he's suffering. (laughs) But especially now, because he's got the plague. Yeah. I wonder if that's, like, if it's a little bit, um, like, a little bit of magic, like, prophecy type stuff. Like, he can sense Mm -hmm. his bond being in danger. It's the secret bond connection. Yeah. The magical, magical empathy link. (laughs) That's what that's called. What else did they have that in? Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson. Percy and Grover have yes. that link. <laughs> Speaking of suffering, Gregor suffers through the first half of the school day until lunch. He notes that he's always hungry, both because there's not a lot of food at home and because he's growing so much. He always eats his whole free school lunch, even if he doesn't like it. But today is pizza day and his friend Angelina gives him her food. She's too nervous to eat because she's the lead in the school play tonight. Gregor offers to practice lines with her, which he and their friend Larry have been doing for weeks to help her prepare. The friends poke fun at each other for the rest of lunch. I'm pretty sure this is the only time that we ever see Larry and Angelina on page. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this scene because like it's not really relevant to the larger story. Like it like or it doesn't seem like it is. Like it sets up that Gregor has connections in the Overland that he cares about. But it's but that's already established with with his family and it's interesting to see that like that like first of all, even though he's distracted, he doesn't like think to himself like, "Oh, she's worried about lines." Well, I'm worried about a war. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's still like fully sympathetic to his friend's problems, and that also like that there are problems in the Overland, like Larry having to go to the hospital for his asthma attack. Right. And also that Gregor disappeared for a period of time and can't tell his friends where he was, and they're not talking about it. But I want to know like what did he tell them, and did they believe him? Right. I think the story is that he had the flu. Okay. And he's- is what they tell people. But yeah, no. I mean, I wonder if his friends like tried to call him or something. Right. Was, you know, sick. Right. 
and they couldn't he, they weren't allowed to speak to him yeah i wonder because we get like so much of a feel for their friendship just from these two pages yeah i think it's really well done like he's part of a golden trio but he just has to keep leaving i was thinking about that too i was like in another world larry angelina and gregor are like a golden trio right like they need to be having wacky adventures in new york but he just keeps getting pulled into this subterranean war yeah yeah like there's a alternate universe where this book series is about gregor larry and angelina falling into the underland not gregor and boots oh my god yeah which would be so different yeah and that would be like so you know that would be so percy jackson that would yeah. be so harry potter yeah that would be so secrets of drune like <laughs> yeah that is funny that she just she just puts them in here like yeah i know this is how a, a typical author would would focus on the story but i'm not doing that uh-uh. <laughs> yeah i think it's a really good little taste of like this is what gregor's life would be like if it was normal all the time yeah and this is like what he wants most is to not have to deal with the underland right and just have this and it is really sad that he he knows that like thinking about the underland so much is bad for him because like he says that he likes running lines with angelina because it distracts him from obsessing about the underland and he like knows that that's a bad thing and he's telling himself like keep your head in the overland <sighs> mm-hmm. the rest of the day goes well gregor gets through classes remembers to pick up lizzie eats takeout food with larry and goes to see the play at night gregor piles blankets his coat and a couple towels on top of him to stay warm the narration says his mom and dad came in to say goodnight. That made him feel more secure. For so many years, his dad had been absent or too ill to come in. To have both his parents tuck him in seemed like a real luxury. <sighs> That's wild. I mean, Gregor is so mature. I forget that he really is just an 11-year-old kid who like wants to be tucked in by his parents. Right. When, when I read this, I'm like, wow, his parents still tuck him in? But no, he's 11. He's fucking 11. <laughs> and he just like needs that. And it makes him feel more safe and secure. When his dad leans down to hug him, he whispers, no mail, meaning there was no message from the Underland left for them in the laundry room vent today. His mom dubbed the laundry room off limits, but his dad knows how important the Underlanders are to Gregor, so he sneaks down and checks for him. The narration says, It was different for his mom. She had never been to the Underland. In her mind, everyone who lived there was somehow connected to the abduction of her husband and children, but Gregor and his dad both had friends down there. This comes up a lot, the fact that Gregor and his dad share this experience of being in the Underland and being invested in what's going on down there, but Grace doesn't have the same perspective as them because she hasn't been. <laughs> that won't be true for much longer. <laughs> but like, even after Grace does go to the Underland, she never really cares about it the way that Gregor and his dad do. Like, she basically just maintains this attitude of, like, fuck these guys, we're getting out of here throughout the whole series. Yeah. One thing that I was wondering about is just, like, who are Gregor's dad's friends? Because he must have made friends pretty quickly since most of the time he was held in captivity by the rats. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. I think it means Vicus. Like, okay. I think Vicus and Gregor's dad, like, got on well when... Because I think in the first book it says that Gregor's dad was, like, in regalia for a couple weeks before he tried to escape and got captured by the rats. Oh, okay. Okay. So I assume like Vicus and other people in the palace 
But yeah, that'd be cool to know, like, who else did he interact with? Yeah. He might have interacted with Luke's parents, because Luke's parents weren't dead yet. Oh, that that's why. And yeah, they would have been super important. <gasps> I've never thought about that before, that Gregor's dad might have hung out with Luke's parents, and, like, now he knows that they're dead and knows that Luke is an orphan, and there's a lot there. Yeah. That's a rich vein. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. Gregor lies awake for hours thinking about the Underland. It kind of sucks that his dad has to tell him there's no news of Regalia right before bed because then he's up all night thinking about it. Oh, true. Because yeah. it says that like his day was pretty normal like after lunch. like He managed to keep himself from thinking about the Underland too much and he like had fun with his friends and whatnot. And then he has to end his day with like, oh yeah, by the way, there's been no news about your missing friends. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> It really sucks. And it sucks that, like, the Regalians have not just said, like, update. They're still not back. Like, Right, right. Like, even that would be better than nothing. Right. Like, I, it's, I'm wondering about manipulative Vicus again, if he's, like, Gregor will be more invested if he doesn't know. Yeah, more eager to come back. Or if maybe if that was some Rip Red counsel. I feel like that's more of a Rip Red move. And considering that later we find out that Rip Red somehow is reading the messages that Vicus sends or, like... Has because he shows up instead of Vicus. Yeah, I, I actually have questions about that later. Yeah, we'll okay, get to it. Okay. In the morning, Gregor goes to Mrs. Cormacy's to help her with mm -hmm. chores. He used to think she was making up jobs for him to do because she knows Gregor's family needs the money, but now that it's so cold and icy out, she really needs his help. She feeds him a big breakfast of deluxe oatmeal and orange juice. I think we should make like a Gregor the Overlander cookbook. Oh, yeah. Of like all of Cor Mrs. Cormacy's food and all of the cool food that he eats in the Underland. And like, then we'll just have like clunky sandwiches from yeah. Luxa. <laughs> School lunch pizza. Yes. <laughs> Gregor runs Mrs. Cormacy's errands for her. Can you imagine seeing an 11 year old shopping for groceries by himself? I never considered that. Yeah. Like, like he has to get her groceries. Can you imagine like this little kid just being like, oh, yes, I'm getting all of these groceries and I have the money for this. Like pushing a cart around. How many shelves can he even reach? Yeah, for real. <laughs> then they go to the bank together and the liquor store. But Mrs. Cormacy drops the bottle of wine she bought on her rug on the way back into her apartment. She says, that's it. Eileen's getting candy. I've got a nice box of chocolate creams. Never been opened. Someone gave it to me for Christmas. I hope it wasn't Eileen. <laughs> I feel like this belongs on the list of top iconic Mrs. Cormacy lines. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just love this. Like, <laughs> like, she hopes it wasn't Eileen, but it's gonna happen either way. Yeah, yeah. And she's just like, she just gives up on getting her a bottle of wine. She's just like, fuck it. Like, I'm not, I'm not going out there again. <laughs> She says they need to go wash the rug and Gregor can't come up with a good excuse for why he can't go to the laundry room, so they go. While they're there, Mrs. Cormacy drops a coin and Gregor has to go retrieve it from behind a dryer. When he goes, he sees that between the wall and the grate covering the vent, there's a scroll! <laughs> That's the end of chapter nice. one. What an opener. Yeah. Okay, chapter two. Gregor can't get the scroll while he's with Mrs. Cormacy, so he follows her back upstairs and tries to keep up his side of the conversation over lunch because he's so distracted. When they're done and Mrs. Cormacy mentions putting the rug in the dryer, Gregor jumps up so fast his chair falls over <laughs> and he eagerly volunteers to go to the laundry room. Seriously, like the chair falls over. He's so excited. <laughs> 
comical. Mrs. Cormacy is suspicious and asks why his family goes to the laundromat instead of the basement to do their laundry. She's like putting the pieces right? together. And this is, this part is interesting to me because like when she said go down to the laundry room, was she like not thinking about it or was she like, they don't usually go to the laundry room. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's <laughs> test it. She's funny because she also mentions that she checked to see if the prices were the same yeah. at the laundromat, which means that she had to like go out of her way to visit the laundromat and check. She's so nosy. Right? <laughs> Literally. Just... <laughs> but yeah, she's totally like putting it together. She's like, well, this family's like being weird. And suddenly they stopped going to the laundry room. And Gregor is like really eager to go there now. Like, what's the deal? The fact that she even noticed that they're using a different laundry place in the first place. Right. She's so nosy. I love her. Gregor says that they go to the laundromat because the washers are bigger there, and Mrs. Cormacy clearly doesn't believe that that's the full truth, but she just lets him go. Between the elevator ride and waiting for the laundry room to be empty of people, it takes forever for Gregor to reach the scroll. He takes it to the privacy of the stairwell to read it, and it turns out to be a message from Vicus. He's asking Gregor to meet him below Central Park at 4 o'clock because the prophecy of blood is upon them. I was wondering, how does Vicus know what time it is in the Overland? Oh, yeah. Like, do they have a clock in Regalia that's, like, synced up to New York? Like, a world clock? <laughs> like, in the airport? Maybe they do, because, like, if they can... Rats can go up into libraries, like, I guess mm-hmm. they have ways of seeing what time it is, and it might be useful for them to know. That's true. Or maybe they started doing that now that Gregor is, like, in regular contact with them. Oh, yeah, it's like, oh, we better know what time it is up there. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I imagine that... It wouldn't be that hard to check what time it was. Because if the small bats in the overland can talk to the big bats the way that the small oh. rats talk to the big rats and the small cockroaches talk to the big cockroaches. Yeah, I feel like the above ground animals would be able to convey that information somehow. Yeah, that makes sense. Gregor is disappointed that the note from Vicus doesn't have any information about Luxa, Ares, or his other friends. He recalls the prophecy from memory, which I will now read in its entirety. Oh yeah, all the way down a beat. <laughs> <laughs> this one is pretty musical, honestly. Uh-huh. It's got like a rhythm to it. Warm blood now, a blood-born death, will rob your body of its breath. Mark your skin and seal your fate. The underland becomes a plate. Turn and turn and turn again. You see the what, but not the when. Remedy and wrong entwine, and so they form a single vine. Bring the warrior from above, if yet his heart is swayed by love. Bring the princess or despair, no crawlers care without her there. Turn and turn and turn again, you see the what, but not the when. Remedy and wrong entwine, and so they form a single vine. Those whose blood runs red and hot must join to seek the healing spot. In the cradle, find the cure for that which makes the blood impure. Turn and turn and turn again. You see the what, but not the when. Remedy and wrong entwine, and so they form a single vine. Nar, human, set aside the hatreds that reside inside. If the flames of war are fanned, all warm bloods lose the underland. Turn and turn and turn again. You see the what, but not the when. Remedy and wrong entwine, and so they form a single vine. Yeah, I really like that one. So yeah, Gregor is thinking about the prophecy because the note from Vicus mentions that the prophecy of blood is upon them, and then he kind of goes through it in his head trying to analyze it. 
Gregor figures that the first stanza is describing a disease that's deadly to mammals. The second stanza mentions the warrior and the princess. Gregor has started believing he's the warrior by now, but he hates it. <laughs> he hopes the princess doesn't refer to boots, but it probably does. The rest of the prophecy suggests that humans and rats have to work together to cure the disease, and Gregor thinks that's unlikely, since the two species hate each other so much. The narration says, And then there was Sandwich's usual prediction that if things didn't work out, there would be total destruction and everybody would end up dead. And Gregor wonders if Sandwich has ever written anything with a happy ending, <laughs> which I think is a good bit of foreshadowing for the prophecy about the peacemaker that we find out about in All book right. five. One random thing that I just thought of is that the turn and turn and turn again part, you know, that that like old song, it's like do it, not that old, do everything, turn, turn, turn. Have you heard this or by? No. Okay. Who's it by? Maybe Peter, Paul, and Mary. I think it's a bunch of people because the the tune, I don't remember who the tune is by, but the lyrics are from the Bible. It's, I saw. Oh, shit. Yeah, written by, it was like, this is the world. I saw a Wikipedia article screenshotted in a Tumblr that was like, this is the world's oldest lyrics penned by King David of Israel. Hey, everyone. It's Editing Una. The song that Nate was thinking of was Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There Is a Season by The Birds. It's a song from the 60s that is associated with the Vietnam War, so that's interesting. The Bible verse that it uses in its lyrics is Ecclesiastes verse 3, lines 1 to 8. I'm not going to read the whole Bible quote here, so you can look it up if you want to. It does seem to have a lot to do with war and peace, and there's also a lot about plants, healing, mourning, so I think that even though the turn, turn, turn part of the Gregor prophecy isn't from the Bible, Suzanne Collins might have been making this connection to the Bible through this song by the birds. I would love to come back to this in a bonus episode that we do about the prophecies sometime in the future. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, what's his name? Sandwich could actually be referencing that. Ooh, isn't the vine thing a Bible thing too? Ooh, I think so. That must. I remember this from Hamilton's. I was about to say, I know this because of Hamilton. <laughs> uh, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid a moment alone in the shade. <laughs> I can't believe you just pulled that out. <laughs> I could pull out a lot of Hamilton. Oh my god. Yeah, no, I think that's from the Bible. I'll have to look up that later, maybe. Or maybe you'll run into it in your reading oh, yeah. of the Bible. Yeah, I'm on I'm on prophets right now. So presumably soon I'll get to that actual song from Dave. Nice. Um, which is about crop or I mean it's like theoretic I think it's about like planting crops, but I'm sure it's a metaphor for something. Mm -hmm, always. The vine and fig tree thing that we're talking about is also from the Bible. It's a quote that appears in several places in the Bible, but it made it into the song one last time in Hamilton because George Washington used the phrase in his letters throughout his life. The phrase refers to a farmer who is freed from military oppression, and George Washington used it in the context of the American Revolution and the founding of the United States. So that's another thing that we can come back to when we analyze the prophecies more closely someday. Yeah, so the part of the prophecy that Gregor can't figure out is this repeating stanza that we're talking about, the turn and turn and turn again part, which is kind of like a chorus. Gregor wants to talk about it with Vicus since he's good at interpreting the prophecies. And I'm like, is he though? <laughs> that's what I was also thinking. <laughs> is Vicus good at interpreting the prophecies? Or like... Or is he good at 
feeding Gregor an explanation. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> like in in the Vicus in the Vicus controlled state. All the prophecies make sense only when Vicus reads them. Yeah. Because uh, literally the last two books, Vicus like gives Gregor an explanation, and it's like, yeah, you got to go on this quest, and then it doesn't happen the way that. Vicus warned him that it would. It's like every single episode of House where House diagnoses a guy and they're like, House, you're wrong. You fucked up. And he's like, I did fuck up. It's actually this. And then he's right. And everybody's like, all right, House, we'll keep letting you be a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly like that. (laughs) Gregor goes back to Mrs. Cormacy's and she gives him 40 bucks and a scarf because, quote, I've got enough scarves to choke a horse. (laughs) Another top 10 Cormacy line, I think. (laughs) Gregor goes home and shows the message from Vicus and the prophecy of blood to his dad. Dad is upset that Gregor kept the prophecy from him, and he says his mom won't let him return to regalia. Gregor is torn because on one hand, he doesn't want to worry his mother again, but on the other, he needs to save his underland friends. Gregor and his dad agree that they have to go meet Vicus and see what's up, so they invite Mrs. Cormacy over to watch the girls and grandma. She tells them, you need a little father-son time, and the narration says, maybe they did, but not this kind. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just an accurate description of their relationship for like the past several yes. months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They suit up for their journey underground. Gregor grabs a flashlight and Dad grabs a crowbar to pry up the rock that covers the entrance to the Underland and Central Park. They take a cab to the park and Gregor notices how exhausted his dad seems just from walking through the trees. They go down the stairs with only Gregor's flashlight to see by, and just as he's telling his dad to take his time on the steps, the flashlight is knocked out of his hand by the tail of a giant rat. I hate when that happens. (laughs) Ripred literally always knows how to make an entrance. Yeah, yeah. In the first book, Ripred had his line about being a legend, and in book two, he showed up with Twitch Tip to fight the Regalian guards, and then this. <laughs> <laughs> he just, this one, like, he was just waiting there. He's like, oh, this is gonna be so good. He's yeah. like, oh, what am I gonna do? This is gonna be so good. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like he, he must have done that the first two times, too. Like, in, in the first book, he was, like, waiting for the yeah. right moment to <laughs> show up. <laughs> and then, um... His whole walk to regalia with Twitch Tip is probably going to be like, Twitch Tip, and then we're going to attack the guards, and it's going to be so fun. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a a drama queen. Yeah, he's he's got, like, big, like, theater kid energy. (laughs) He's got, like, drama dad energy. Oh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's chapter two. Chapter three. Gregor swings the crowbar, but the rat catches it in its teeth and ends up pinning him to the ground. A familiar voice says, pitiful, just pitiful. And Gregor is relieved and then annoyed. He says, get off me, man. (laughs) Love that. Ripred just shifts to sit more comfortably on top of Gregor and scolds him for not being able to fight in the dark. Gregor's dad threatens Ripred with a chunk of concrete, but Gregor explains that it's just Ripred, whom he calls a friend, but internally he admits that friend is a bit of a stretch. (laughs) Ripred accuses Gregor of not practicing his echolocation, and Gregor insists that he practices with Lizzie, but leaves out the fact that she has to make him do it. The narration describes how Lizzie takes Gregor's homework from Ripred very seriously and makes him put on a blindfold to practice seeing with sound. 
at first I thought this was like really cute because Lizzie is like such a, a nerd that she's like, you have to do your homework, Gregor. But after thinking about it a little more, she's probably like extremely worried about him getting lost in the dark. Yeah, that's, I didn't even think about that. I'm just like, I bet she does this with his regular homework too. But no, she's like, you need to not die and you're fucking it up. Yeah, yeah. She's like, Rifford literally gave you instructions on how to survive and I'm going to make sure that you do it. God. It is kind of cute, though, that she, like, puts a blindfold yeah, on Yeah, <laughs> and they just go to a random, like, place in the stairwell. People are just walking past, like, all right, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that family at it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Cormacy is, like, taking notes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she's got little binoculars staring at her. She's like, I'm putting all the pieces together. <laughs> little opera glasses. Yes. <laughs> Gregor asks where Vicus is, and Ripred says he's not coming. Gregor says, but he wrote me about the prophecy of blood. I thought he was meeting us. And Ripred says, and I thought you'd be alone. So I don't think I've ever understood like what exactly the deal is with this. I forget if Vicus ever actually says to Gregor later, like, hey, sorry, I couldn't meet you and I had to send Ripred instead. Does this mean that Ripred somehow like forged this letter to Gregor? Yeah, I was also wondering. And that. it wasn't actually Vicus. But I feel like Vicus would want him to come to this meeting. I think probably the most logical reason is that Vicus is like, I'm gonna tell Gregor that I need to meet with him and he will want to meet with me because I'm nice, but actually I can't leave Regalia and it's like dangerous to be in the tunnels oh. under Central Park, so I'll send Rip Red instead. Yeah, and he and he could have I feel like he could have sent like a lot of people but Ripbird's like no I want to go I want to go fuck with this kid yeah yeah <laughs> and Ripbird presumably was like already in regalia because he was here for the meeting oh right that makes sense so Ripbird's just like oh I'm gonna go on a field trip yeah Vikas is just like hey I'm really swamped with all of this like council stuff I think you should you should go like pick up Gregor for me and Ripbird's like rubbing his little hands together <laughs> his little rat hands yeah I think maybe this gets explained later but I forget I can't remember Ripperd asks if Gregor's dad remembers him, and dad seems like he has to sift through a bunch of traumatic memories mm -hmm. to recall that Ripred brought him food when he was imprisoned by the rats. I was thinking at that when when Ripred says, and I thought you would be alone, I feel like he's kind of, he doesn't actually apologizing, but he's apologizing because when he attacked Gregor in the tunnel, he like gave Ripred, <gasps> oh. he gave Gregor's dad like a traumatic flashback and he's like, hey, you remember me, I'm the nice rat, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, like if, yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Ripred is probably like conscious of the fact that Gregor's dad would be super worried and freaked out by a rat attack. Yeah. But like, okay, presumably Ripred would have smelled Gregor's dad. Oh, that's true. Before actually like seeing them and attacking Gregor. So maybe he was just like, well, I'm still going to do my plan, but now I feel kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, though. Like, this is another... Okay, wait, I just realized this is another food theme of, like, Ripred brings food to, to Gregor's dad. Oh, right. And it's like, it seems like it's a nice thing he's doing, but also they must have, like, they must have had to bring him food because they wanted to make them weapons. Like, they're yes. not starving him. So was Ripred, like, was he giving him encouragement? Were they, like, sort of friendly? Or is it just, like, literally Ripred brought him food sometimes and but that, didn't hurt him? Right, and that was, like, maybe... Because we theorized that Ripred, like, worked in the the rat prison before he, like, left for the Deadland and started his rat group. So, like, was that just Ripred's job? Like, go feed the prisoner? Yeah, I feel like it must have been. Unless he was giving him, like, extra food. Yeah, I don't know. 
I guess it could be like presumably they could have just thrown food down into the pit, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Rip Red actually came and gave it to him and like talked to him for a minute. I don't know how Rip Red would have gotten down into the pit and back up again. Oh, that's true. I I imagine he's just lowering the food into the pit somehow. Maybe he has like encouraging notes like hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> like a mom writing little notes in her Call, uh, yeah, in her child's lunchbox. My mom used to do that except she would write it in phonetic Hebrew because otherwise my friends would try to read it even though it was just like have a great stay at school honey I love you (laughs) (laughs) that is so cute yeah it was great why did you did you like tell your mom like yeah my friends always try and read your notes I think I must have yeah (laughs) so she started doing it that is so adorable actually yeah Did your friends be like, oh man, that I, sucks. I think so. I think they would probably, I think they would steal it anyway and like try to tell me to tell them what it said and I would tell them because I was like, I can read it. I'm smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now I write fan fiction on the bus the same way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your mom was unknowingly preparing yeah. you for this. That's funny that she also kind of gave you like a little bit of homework with your lunch. Oh yeah. Yeah, she she was a Hebrew she was the fifth grade teacher, so I'm sure she was like excellent. Like like I didn't even know about her sneaky plan to get me to study. <laughs> Damn, I didn't even think about that's that. So funny. She's just was like, we'll also get some Hebrew practice in. Like that's I so funny. Didn't even think about that. Oh my god. <laughs> You're She's so hilarious yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> Rip Red asks if anyone brought him food, and Gregor notices that he does look skinny. Gregor offers a leftover fortune cookie from his pocket, and Rip Red is like super sarcastic about accepting it. <laughs> Gregor asks why he's so hungry, and Rip Red says that Solovet has been starving the rats out and he's had to keep the rapidly growing bane fed. Rip Red complains that the bane eats more than everyone else, but he can't hunt for himself. When Gregor asks him about Luxa, Rip Red says she's still missing, but he's pretty sure she's not being kept prisoner by the rats. I have, I guess, a couple thoughts. Mm -hmm. Why can't the Bane hunt for himself? I feel like it it was more that he, like, refused to, like, in a petulant toddler way, and they're like, well, he still has to eat. But uh, yeah, I feel like if Rip Red, at this point, we don't know that he already had kids, but I remember being so, like, amused and also let down that he's such a bad adopted dad to the Bane. But, like, he's, he, like, just, you get the impression, or I got the impression, like, he's doesn't seem like he's trying very hard like when we actually see yeah. him interact with the bane he's like shut up you piece of shit oh yeah he's totally mean yeah yeah he's definitely not helping the situation right but yeah you're right like i feel like that's that the bane can't hunt because if it was possible for him to hunt rip red would have whipped him into shape by now and he would be hunting yeah or if they thought that he could hunt they would have just let him starve until he fed himself oh that's true so i think that i'm imagining that like the rats are taking the bane hunting and he keeps like fucking it up in front of them uh-huh and I'm wondering, is he like, does it have something to do with like how maladjusted he is? Uh-huh. Does it have to do with the fact that he is like too big for his, like he, his body is too big for him and he is clumsy and therefore he's like bad at hunting? Maybe he doesn't have as much camouflage because he's bright white. And oh, that's a thought. And he stands out in the dark. Yeah, that could be it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about like the Bane's upbringing, especially since in the next book we 
hear a lot of stuff from Rip Red, but Rip Red is being like super mean about it and like making fun of the Bane. And I want to know like what the other rats in Rip Red's pack are like. Do they follow Rip Red's example? Are they like mean to the Bane or are they really trying and <laughs> Rip Red's like hindering their <laughs> progress? Yeah. And like at what point when Rip Red was first, when the Bane was a little baby, was Rip Red like trying to be nice? And when it was like hid, was it like that the Bane started being a brat and so Rip Red fought back? Or was it like Rip Red was just not equipped to raise another child? after his first rat children died because he does all right with lizzie like he understands how to interact with lizzie yes i think that rip red definitely has the capability to be nice and he chooses not to be i don't know why because you you would think that it would be like to his advantage to be nice to the bane right but i think it is maybe like a mix of his own trauma about losing his kids and were you on the episode where I talked about the theory that the Bane's mother, Goldshard, was Rip Red's sister? There's like a line in the second book when Gregor brings the Bane to Rip Red and he's like, or Gregor's like, you don't like kids, do you? And Rip Red's like, not this kid in particular. And, oh, yeah. And then he has another line that's like, if the Bane is anything like its mother, I'll have my hands full. And it like implies that Rip Red knew Goldshard on some level and people have theorized that means that like maybe they were siblings or there was some other type of history there yeah that that's a good point which would contribute to rip red's like hesitation maybe if like the bane also reminds him of gold shard that's like more sadness yeah it just seems like he already thinks that things are not going to work out from the for the bane yeah and he kind of blames it on the bane like not trying hard enough even though this is just a child rat who's been orphaned yeah and is also like he's very he's similar to luxa or gregor like thrown in i mean yeah that's the whole theme but he's like thrown into this war that he doesn't understand yeah but he ends up being a bad guy yeah yeah i have a whole lot of parent rip red thoughts that Mm -hmm. we'll have to get into in book four Mm -hmm. but um my other thought about this part was that rip red says that he's pretty sure that lusa isn't being kept prisoner by the rats but he says that aurora and twitch tip are still unaccounted for and I'm like wondering this for the first time. If Rippert has spies that tell him that Luxa isn't being held prisoner, wouldn't he also know that Twitchtip is being held prisoner? Oh, yeah. Maybe it's like Luxa stands out more because she's a human, whereas Twitchtip is now just like a rat who's maybe unrecognizable now that her nose has been smashed. Mm. But yeah, that's a good point. But the way that we find out that she dies in the fifth book is that they intercept a message in the code of claw that says twitch tip died in the pits oh so like they mention her by name yeah that's weird i guess it doesn't say that i don't know if they say this was she captured right from the labyrinth or maybe she was like deadland or like somewhere else for a while that's true and yeah then captured sometime later so maybe at this point in the story she's not prisoner that i think that would make sense yeah. like it could be anything i yeah. guess um, but I was also thinking, you know, I wouldn't put it past Rip Red to just, like, not mention that. Right. Like, does he really not know where Twitch Tip is? Or is he just not telling Gregor because that would distract him from the plague issue? Right. Gregor would be like, we need to go save Twitch Tip. And- exactly. Um, Gregor would be yeah. like, we need to go, like, rescue her. Yeah. And Rip Red would have to be like, we're not allowed to do that, Gregor. Yeah, we have to go find the plague cure. Yeah, he probably just doesn't want to argue with Gregor. <laughs> like, if he does know yeah whether or not like i think yeah maybe he doesn't know but like if he if he did know he wouldn't tell Gregor. yeah (laughs) which is so funny yeah wow 
But there is some good news. Temp made it back from the Deadland with some newly grown legs. Oh, yeah. And he's really excited to see the princess again. Gregor and his dad exchange a look because Grace would definitely never allow Boots back to the Underland. Ripred explains that Vicus is sending a bat tonight to pick up Gregor and Boots and bring them to Regalia to deal with this plague issue. He explains that it's some kind of pox that causes lung failure, and the rats are suffering the worst out of all of the warmbloods right now. He mentions that no one knows how the nibblers are doing, and when prompted, he explains that nibblers are mice. I, I like how smoothly or yeah. how conveniently they're introduced. I think that's good. Yeah, because this is the first time we've heard the word nibbler. Right. I think there was mentions of mice, like Gregor saw some mice at some point in the mm-hmm. first book, but this is the first time that we're hearing about them as kind of like a major player in the war of species going on. Right. Yeah, that is like a, a smooth way of introducing them. Ripred tries to convince Gregor it's safe in Regalia because there are only three plague cases and they're quarantined. <laughs> Ripred tells Gregor that he just has to come for this one meeting where all the attendees will be tested for the plague ahead of time, and then he and Boots can go home right after. <laughs> Gregor doubts this because usually the prophecies make him go on a quest, but Ripred cites the line from the Prophecy of Blood that just says to bring the warrior from above. According to Ripred, no one expects Gregor to come up with a cure on his own, so they won't need him after this meeting. This is like peak manipulative Ripred. Yeah. Yeah, he he 100% knows he's lying. Yeah. He literally, oh my god, we'll talk about it when the reveal comes. <laughs> he's just like, what kind of moron would try to make a child cure a plague? Am I right, Gregor? Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Ripred, you fucking know. You know what kind of idiots are in regalia. <laughs> Gregor tries to convince his dad that it'd be okay for him to go, and Ripred cuts in to say, The warrior will come. We know that. When Gregor asks him why he's so sure, Ripred reveals that one of the plague cases in Regalia is Ares. R.I.P. Doomed from the beginning and just gets more doomed. (laughs) Just continues to be doomed in different ways. Yeah. Same, Same doom, different day. Yeah. And that's where the chapter ends, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's the end. Cliffhanger. He really buried the lead on that one. Right? There's only three plague cases. And And he also doesn't mention that the other two are Howard and Andromeda. Oh my god, yeah. I forgot about that because they like all went on the journey and they picked up the plague. Oh, man. Yeah. So Ripred is just like, oh, yeah, like, there's three plague cases. And then later he's like, Ares is one of them. And then Gregor gets all the way down to the hospital before he realizes that the other plague cases are Howard and Andromeda. Which, it's funny that Ripred didn't reveal that, because you'd think that would make Gregor even more want to come down. Yeah. But Ripred was just like, eh, I only need to give him this much information. You know what? I think at one point... I'm trying to remember now. Oh, in book four, when they rescue Ripred from the pit, Ripred is like, and what's your name to Howard? And Gregor is like, stop playing Ripred. You know who he is. And Ripred's like, uh, no, actually, we haven't met. And then Gregor is like, oh, yeah, they haven't met. Oh, that's funny. So, like, maybe Ripred just straight up doesn't know who Howard is. <laughs> and, and doesn't, like, care to ask. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny, yeah. Yeah, this is quite the opener to the book. Yeah, and I feel like it's, it's like, impressive... Like, because she has to, Suzanne Collins, like, has to do all the overland stuff, but I feel like that's, like, so much more, even though it's, like, 
really interesting like to what it reveals about Gregor's life if you're a kid who's just like I want to get to the adventure part it's so boring mm-hmm. but and she has to get all that in as quickly as she can mm-hmm. to get back to get the adventure started again yeah and she does it so well every single book and I also remember when we listened to the audiobook like this part felt so much longer to me I was like wow we're really we're really taking some time to be in Gregor's life in the overland mm-hmm. but it's really just it's like two chapters and that's it yeah much. yeah I feel like this one's Maybe slightly longer than the other books. I mm-hmm. I guess I haven't even looked at the pages. But I mean, definitely these chapters are more packed with stuff, which is part of the reason why going forward I want to do fewer epi- or fewer chapters per episode so I can spend more time talking about everything that happens in the chapters because so much happens in this book. Yeah. Gregor has a lot of internal thoughts. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of different characters. There's like a huge cast of characters for this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. The plague doctors, the questers, the mice, yeah, the rats. Yeah, Hamnet and Frill and yeah, Hazard. I forgot about Frill, the giant lizard. Oh, God, I can't wait. It is funny, we only meet one Frill. Like, are there a bunch of them somewhere? Yeah, like, the knows? hissers. Oh, the hissers, okay. Yeah, I don't think that we meet any other hissers. Okay, but there are other yes. hissers. Yeah. But this is, yeah, no, they really do get into it pretty quickly, even though it seems like we're getting a really good look at what Gregor's life is like right now in the Overland. We're meeting his friends, we're going to school, like, we're going to Mrs. Cormacy's to do her errands, and, like, the, that those things aren't skipped over. They're really well-paced, they're really well-described, but they also, like, they're not too long to be boring yeah and we get the prophecy in the second chapter yeah this time which is the quickest we've ever gotten a prophecy oh that's true i didn't even think about that because he already has it i bet i mean i'm sure she was planning this but if i was like writing as i do like one, i do one chapter and then i publish it on the fan fiction website Mm -hmm. i would be like yes i gave him the prophecy at the end of the last chapter this is a great move on my part yeah 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 it's like the first time that Gregor has read the prophecy before we, the readers, have. Oh, right. Yeah. in the past two books, we have been experiencing them for the first time as Gregor reads them for the first time. But in this, he's already been living with knowing the prophecy of blood for a long time, for like a few months, and we're just now learning it. And he already has some like interpretations in mind and some things that he knows are typical of these prophecies. Yes. Yeah. He's like making fun of like, well, Sandwich <laughs> always says everyone's going to die. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me, Nate. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great. On next week's episode, we'll be covering chapters four, five, and six. Don't forget to follow us on Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at Return to Regalia. And send us your questions and theories at Return to Regalia at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, fly you high. Fly you high.